Will you take your Bibles and turn with me to the, let's see, what passage do we want to start with? Um, I have several passages that I want to deal with today, and I think we probably need to start with um, um, Genesis chapter 11. Now we're going to go, we're going to land there first, but let me kind of introduce this to you. Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11 deals with the Tower of Babel. But before we do that, I brought a book with me today. It's one of my fun books that I have in my library. It's called Meredith's Second Book of Bible Lists. And uh, it's as good as the first book. But it's titled More Stimulating, Informative, and Often Surprising Bible Facts in List Form. So I looked up on page 142 at the chapter that's entitled Forces of Nature. And here's what I read. Through the advances of meteorology, we are able to watch the development of weather patterns every evening on the local TV news. It's fascinating to be able to watch the satellite pictures of the cloud cover and the radar images of rain and wind, f wind fronts. Somehow, one gets the sense that we actually understand what is happening in nature. We can easily forget that though we still have, though we may understand more about what is happening in nature, we still have no say about what happens we still find ourselves extremely vulnerable to the powers of the wind, rain, snow, floods, etc. Now, the following lists show that the people in the Bible were also very vulnerable to nature's forces. In these lists, we see not only the powerful weather patterns that the writers observe, but the ways in which God was often very active in using these patterns for His purposes. God has a purpose for everything. Nothing just happens as far as God is concerned. Recorded are many instances when God intervened by way of strong winds, hail, floods, lightning, thunder, and rain. He used these methods to speak to people then, and we shouldn't be surprised if He uses them to speak to us today. So everything that God has to say about the weather that He has written for us in His Word, He is speaking to us today. Now here's the amazing thing that I find about all of this. You see, the conclusion is we still have to admit that we have no say in the weather. I can't control it. You can't control it. The United States can't control it. The governments of the world put together can't control it. I think it's an indication that we are getting a little too big for our britches. You all know what that refers to. We're getting a little too big for our britches. For instance, in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And I'm going to do a lot of reading today because anything else that I say is filler compared to what the Scriptures say. 
In Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us be scattered abroad, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. That's their perspective. We want to make a name for ourselves as a human race, as a one world together. Now, the Lord has a different perspective on all of this. His perspective comes in verse 6 and following. And the Lord said, Indeed, the peoples are one, and they have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing, now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. They think they can do everything. They think there's nothing they can't do. They think that if we put everybody together, we can solve every problem, we can deal with every issue, we can control everything. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit say, let us go down and confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. And mankind is now trying to get back and do the same thing that they did at the Tower of Babel. And the problem with that is, all it does is it accentuates our pride. All it does is give us self-confidence that we think we have the solutions to everything and that if we put our minds to it and put our energy to it as a one-world effort, we can solve it all. But we can't. Man will never be able to control the weather. Man will never be able to harness hurricanes. Man will never be able to control what God specifically holds in his own hands to control. Now, there are scientific explanations, and I, I want to bring this to your attention. We're going to go to the book of Ecclesiastes and Job and Psalms in just a moment here. But there are scientific explanations for what we see around us. When we see, when we see the kind of a storm, a magnificent, powerful, huge storm like uh, the hurricane that we just saw, the scientific explanation of that is pretty simple. It's, it's all a result of the hydrological water cycle in intensity. Really, 70% of the earth's surface from a scientific perspective is covered in water. If we would take all of the land in the world and we would smooth it all out so it was level, 
water would cover the whole earth to a depth of 1.7 miles. Something like that. The earth is considered to be the water planet. There's no planet that we've ever discovered that looks like earth in that regard. And so I'm, I'm sharing this little description with you so that you will understand that this hydrological cycle is an, is an observation that we have from science, but it is also what is described in Scripture. Solar energy, from a scientific perspective, lifts water from oceans through evaporation. We all know that. And then it's transferred from the oceans to the land by the winds. We all understand that. The water condenses in transfer and falls to the earth as rain or snow or sleet where it runs off through the rivers and groundwater back to the oceans. That's the scientific explanation. Well, <clears throat> Solomon was one of the first scientists there ever was. And in 1 Kings chapter 4, the Bible tells us that Solomon was so inquisitive and he was so wise that he not only wrote thousands of Proverbs and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of songs, but the Bible said that he also studied and observed science. He studied botany. He studied zoology. And you're all saying, where on earth does the Bible say that? 1 Kings chapter 4, beginning at verse 29 and following. And so he observed animals. He observed plants. He observed the world in which we live, and God gave to him very, very interesting observations. Who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. So I want you to look at the first chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, all right? It's after the Psalms, it's after the Proverbs, it's the book of Ecclesiastes right before the Song of Solomon and the book of Isaiah. Now look at the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and let's read what Solomon says in chapter 1 verses 4 and following. One generation passes away and another generation comes. But the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its own circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full to the place from which the rivers come. There they return again. Now, in layman's terms, what Solomon is describing for us is he's describing nature, observations that he has made, and we get bits and pieces of nature from and the hydrological cycle, or the water cycle, if you want to call it that, from Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. But what you have here is a science lesson. Now, I want you to turn to... Jeremiah chapter 10, 
flip over to Jeremiah chapter 10 for not just a science lesson, but instead a lesson on biblical reality. Jeremiah 10. In essence, he is saying the same thing that Solomon says, but in Jeremiah chapter 10, he describes things a little differently in verses 12 and 13. I'm picking verses of Scripture out of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and all of this. And so here's what God says through Jeremiah. He has made the earth by His power. Solomon may not have mentioned God in all of what he said in his scientific observations, but Jeremiah is clear, God has made the earth by His power. God has established the world by His wisdom and has stretched out the heavens at His discretion. When He utters His voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of His treasuries. And so Jeremiah adds this element. He says, listen, you know what? You know, uh, Solomon can describe the science of the hydrological cycle, but let me explain who's responsible for the hydrological cycle. Let me explain who is the one who controls it. Now, go back to the book of Psalms. I'm staying, I, I have you going back and forth a lot. But it's only because of the logic, or otherwise I'd just do it chronologically. But go to Psalm 135 for just a moment. Psalm 135 for just a moment. Where the psalmist is describing his understanding of nature. In three verses, in verses 5, 6, and 7, in Psalm 135, the psalmist says, I know that the Lord is great. And I also know that the Lord is above all gods. Gods are just uh, pieces of wood and stone and things that we bow down and worship, but they have no life in them, no life in themselves. We attribute power to them, but there's no power in them. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. He does it in heaven, and He does it in earth. He does it in the seas, and in all deep places. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. So the psalmist is saying, listen, you know when that weatherman gets on the TV and he describes nature and all that's happening there, the one most important thing he's leaving out is that God is in control of all of this, folks. God is going to determine where the winds go, where they come from. God is going to determine where the hurricane starts and where it ends. God is going to determine everything that happens. Now, go back two books to the book of Job. If there were any other scientist, it would be Job. He studied a lot of science, not because he wanted to, I don't think. He probably observed nature as well as Solomon did, but I don't think he wrote any encyclopedia like Solomon did. 
But he got his lessons from God himself. There are four chapters at the end of Job, for instance, where God does nothing but take nature. And he says, okay, Job, I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and I want you to answer them for me. Who does this? 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 And Job, in every case, has to say, well, Lord, you're the one who does it. You're the one who causes the sun to rise. You're the one who causes the storms. You're the one who does this. You're the one who does that. He didn't even, he didn't even suggest to Job, well, Satan was kind of meddling with you a little bit and wanted some permission for me to do something. He didn't even discuss that with Job. So in Job chapter 26, I just want to read a couple of verses of Scripture here. Job chapter 26, I just want to read two verses because of time, the time element. In verse 8 of Job 26, what does the Bible say? He binds up the water in his thick, thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. How about that? How about that for a science lesson? How would you like to have a science teacher send your kids home and say, I loved science when I was in school. Send your kids home and say, tomorrow we're going to discuss how the, how the tons and tons of water that are in the clouds stay up in the air without breaking. How would you like that? It's remarkable that tremendous quantities of water can be lifted up against the force of gravity hundreds and thousands of feet into the air where it's going to remain suspended until... God moves it over the land or wants it to rain. Now you and I know from a scientific perspective that God equipped the sun that's 93 million miles away to accomplish this task, right? You're all aware of that. You're aware that it's the sun does the work. There's no way, and by the way, let me just say this. I don't care if you are all together at the Tower of Babel trying to solve all the problems of the world, or I don't care if you're, you're trying to solve the problems as a one world today. There's no way in the world that you can do what the sun's doing. And there's no way in the world you can stop the sun from doing what it's doing. Verse 12 of Job chapter 26 says, He stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding he breaks up the storm. Two things. He stirs up the sea with his power, and he breaks up the, the storm with his power. He does them both. And we need to be pretty careful about reminding ourselves that God is always faithful in bringing about the second. Can you imagine, can you imagine the, the newscaster getting on the air and saying, well, a hurricane has formed in the Atlantic Ocean and it's going to hit land and where it stops nobody knows and we don't know if it's ever going to stop. And two weeks later and three weeks later and four weeks later, he's still getting on the air and saying, well, that hurricane's still going. That hurricane's still going. Can you imagine that? Now, I know, I know, I know it's kind of frivolous to even mention this kind of stuff. But you and I need to understand that God is faithful, not only and powerful to bring about storms, 
but he is also just as faithful to stop. He doesn't say, oh, I can't stop it. I can't control it. I've created a monster, and now I don't know what to do with it. That's craziness. It's craziness. Go to Job chapter 38, verses 34 and 35, you see, because our minds are always always working at this kind of stuff. Our minds are always trying to figure this stuff out. And in Job chapter 38, we have a very interesting, two interesting verses of Scripture here, 34 and 35, where Job, before he gets this big science, well, he's, he's in the middle of these big science lessons now that God has given to him, where God discusses not only nature and weather and animals and how the earth works and how nature works. He poses this question, can you lift up your voice to the clouds in verse 34, that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you, it's dry out and, and you need rain, can you just shout into the sky and say, rain, come on, rain? No. No, we tried and we have lots of, lots of illustrations of how we have tried to do that and even seeding clouds and, and all of that. But those are, those are just feeble attempts at best. God says you can't lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you. Can you send out lightnings that they may go? They're going to line up for you and say, okay, here we are. Just command where we're going to strike. Can you do that? He says, no, you can't do that. We can't cause it to storm and we can't stop it either. Keep it in mind. We can't cause it to storm and we can't stop it either. Now, you and I know that the Bible gives to us some very significant storms. In Genesis chapter 7, we have the description of the worst storm in history. There probably never was a storm like this unless it's the storm of the chaos that God created the world out of in Genesis chapter 1. But in chapter 7 of Genesis, in chapter 7 of Genesis verse 11, one verse is all we need. One verse is all we need. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. All of the subterranean reservoirs of water that God had put there broke up, gushed out onto the earth, and the windows of heaven were opened. And in verse 12, it rained on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Talk about a storm. Now, I, I could refer to a lot of other storms, but because we just went through a hurricane, I, I want to deal with two other passages of Scripture that are appropriate under those circumstances. So go to Psalm 107, verses 23 and following. Psalm 107, verses 23 and following. Once again, I can't do better than the commentary that we have here. The Scripture itself speaks for itself. Those who go down, verse 23, those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. What do they see? 
For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens, and they go down again to the depths. That's pretty much what it was like on Lake Erie the last time we were up there fishing, wasn't it? Just, you know, the boat would go up, and then it would get down, and we couldn't see anything but water all the way around us. But anyway, it was fun. It was fun. We saw the wonders of the Lord. <laughs> um, now look, look at what it says. And, and what do men do when they see this? Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man. Uh, that's seasickness. I think that's probably describing the seasickness, you see. And are at their wit's end. Then they do the only sane thing you can do. Since you can't control a storm in any way, shape, or fashion, the only thing you can do is cry out to the one who can control the storm. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He does what? He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet, so he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And he says, don't just do this when it happens. Don't just do it when the storm stops and you're in your house and everything seems to be okay. He says, listen, bring it to church with you. Verse 32, let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. Bring it to church. Let everybody praise the Lord. Lord, thank you for bringing the hurricane to an end, even if you had to do it over western Pennsylvania. All right, I have a third passage here, and that is Acts chapter 27 in the New Testament, and I will just assume an awful lot on your part that you're well aware of the shipwreck of the Apostle Paul. And in the 27th chapter of Acts, I just want to bring to your attention the verses that describe the storm itself, not necessarily the reaction of the people, except maybe one reaction from the Apostle Paul. Sometimes we look at the Old Testament that is filled with answers to questions about nature, and we go to the New Testament, and we say, how come there aren't a lot of answers to nature in the New Testament? Maybe God made things different. Maybe he changed things. Maybe he doesn't work in the New Testament, and now in this modern day and age, the way he worked in the Old Testament. No, that's not true. Doesn't need to give us any more information. We have a ton of it already. Just apply it. Just apply it. In Acts chapter 27, the Bible says that Paul is being taken to Rome. He is on a ship, and in verse 4, the Bible says that the winds were what? Contrary. And these winds stay contrary, not for one day, two days, three days, five days, ten days, but longer than that. In fact, the Bible says in verse 7 of that chapter, at the end of the verse, that the wind was not permitting them to proceed Sailboats, sometimes are at the mercy of the wind, regardless of the techniques that are there in order to get them to sail against the wind. And so they were not permitted to see it. And I, I love this human reaction of the Apostle Paul in verse 9 and 10. In Paul, Paul says in verse 10, 
Men, I perceive that this voyage is going to end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. We're going to lose our lives in this storm. That's what Paul says. See? He says, it's not good. We shouldn't be sailing in this weather. Now, in verse 13, there's a little bit of a reprieve. The south wind blew softly. But in verse 14, but not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclindon. You know, we talk about naming certain climate things like um, what's that wind that comes across the country and causes either dryness at some periods of time and, and wetness at other periods of time. What, what do they call it? I'm having a senior moment. Yeah, El Nino, or El Nino, if they pronounce it that way. If we continue in verse 18, we were exceedingly tempest-tossed. Now when neither sun, verse 20, now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope was lost. Verse 27, now when the 14th night had come as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, and they described the reaction of the people, and I'm just giving you the violence of the waves and the storm, the end of verse 41, the violence of the waves in chapter, uh, and you and I know that what happened, the ship was broken up at sea, and it was on the rocks, and uh, everybody was saved, because even though in Paul's human way of understanding what was going to happen, he says, we're going to all perish, God said to Paul, no, you're not. In essence, it was as if he had said, Paul, I'm in control. It's going to be rough. It's going to be tough. You guys are going to have to pay attention to what you're doing. You're going to have to follow good advice, but I'm in control, and I'm going to make sure that not one single person on your ship loses his life. And that's what he did. Can you imagine being out there in the dark for 14 days and 14 nights, not even seeing the sun? Can you imagine being out there and being tossed by the winds and the waves? Can you imagine the rain? the torrential rains and all of the, all of the things that go with those kind of storms. Can you imagine that? When they finally landed, they landed on the island of Malta, and the Bible says that it was rainy and cold, verse 2 of chapter 28, and God began to work miracles. Listen. When you and I read in Revelation chapter 21, 1, that there's not going to be any more sea in the new heaven or the new earth, let's understand the context. The contents is not to limit God's wonderful works of creation. There's going to be plenty of water, plenty of rivers, plenty of lakes, plenty of streams. But to eliminate the horrifying danger it represented for the people of the world. And what it represents today. That's it. Now I have two other real quick passages of scripture. And I don't know if we can, if we can follow them through very carefully. But here's the thing. I think a lot of us don't like to preach on, on, uh, on weather and things like that in God's word. Because we, we, hate, we hate what people are going to do with it. 
We hate people, you know, we, we hate it when people say, well, God's got to be a terrible God if he brings storms about and causes all kinds of trouble. What God would do that, what God who loves people would do that. You see, we're afraid of that. I think, I think we are. I think we're afraid that people are going to do that. And then their perception of God is going to be, I don't want nothing to do with him. God addresses our pride. He really does. In, in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 1 and following, he addresses the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim. And he says, your glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys. To those who are overcome with wine, I have something to say to you. Those of you who are so full of pride that you would even utter such a statement that God isn't good, that God isn't right in whatever he does, that God doesn't care. Well, that's what it looks like to us. Lord, behold, verse 2, the Lord has a mighty and strong what? What would you put in there if you could? The Lord has a mighty and strong, I'd put the word arm, I'd put the word hand. In fact, he adds the word hand there at the end of verse 2. The Lord has a mighty and strong hand. What's his hand like? Everybody together. A tempest of hail and a destroying storm. What else is it like? A flood of mighty waters overflowing. Who will bring them down to the earth with his hand? God wants us to understand that all of the powerful things that we see in nature are examples or illustration of how powerful God is. So I see this hurricane. I watched bits and pieces of it. I saw what it did. I saw how massive it was. And all I could say was, boy, Lord, you are liking yourself in your power to the power of a hurricane. That is how powerful God is. Do you want to be under the hand of the power of God like that and be in, um, uh, what can I say, uh, be in disobedient to him and be full of pride and shaking your fist in his face and saying, Lord, I don't believe you're a good God because you wouldn't allow this storm if that were not true. Do you want that? Do you want to do that? I'm just asking you whether you think it's a wise thing to do or not. Now, I have one other passage of scripture and I will just read this. I will just read this. It's in Job chapter 9, verses 1 through... Uh, there's several verses here, so let me just read it to you, okay? Because I think that the application is pretty clear. You and I know what the application has to be. I, trust the, I should trust the Lord more than ever when I see the power of a storm, knowing that God is more powerful. He is my source of strength. He is my protection. He is my guidance. He is the one. Now, let me just read this to you. Job 9, we'll be done. Job 9, verses 1 and following. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know it is so. One of his friends has just made a comment to him. And he says, I know what you're telling me is right. God is just. I know what you're telling me is right. God is just. Because they're trying to convince Job that something's wrong with him because he isn't, he isn't well. Truly I know it is so. But how can a man be righteous before God? If one wishes to contend with him, if you want to fight with God, you're going to lose every time. If you want to outsmart him, you're going to lose every time. He could not answer. You wouldn't be able to answer him one time out of a thousand. 
God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? Boy, that's the wrong way to go. He removes the mountains and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades. These are constellations. And the chambers of the south. He does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I don't see him. He can pass right by me and I don't even know he's there. If he moves past, I don't perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Boy, that's a dumb thing to do. Who is going to say that to God? You see? Who can say to him, what are you doing? And then he says this in verse 13, for all of those who have objected to the fact that God can't possibly be good, you just don't know. Your pride is blinding your eyes to the fact that God is a good, righteous, and always does what is best. God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. So if your pride is leading you to react to all of this and say, no, I want nothing to do with God when I see this kind of stuff, God says, wait a minute. In the very next verses, he talks about humility. And Job has a hard time, obviously. He's human like all of us, and we see such tragedy, he, he questions. But he humbles himself. He has to deal with his pride and he humbles himself and he realizes after all that God is in control and will always do what's right, will always do what's best and he always has our best interest at heart. If he needs to judge us for our sin or if he needs to give us a challenge so that we can grow in our faith, he does both of those things. He has reasons for it, amen? All right, we went over just a little bit here, but let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you're in the heavens and you're in control. And we thank you, Lord, that even though we may not be able to figure out the exact reasons why you do what you do, Father, we know you do them. You express your power. Lord, we're not going to try to take that away from you. We're not going to try to limit your power. We're not going to try to eliminate your power. Father, we're going to Acknowledge it for what it is and for who you are and what you do. We know that you're a righteous God. We know that you're a just God. And we know that you need to keep us in a cursed earth so that we will trust you and not our own efforts. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.